This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Rebecca Franks, the magazine's managing editor, and with me in the studio today are editorial assistant Freya Parr and deputy editor Jeremy Pound. Hello. Hello. We've gathered around the microphones today to chat all about the latest goings-on in the world of classical music, from what's making the news headlines to which recordings are at the top of our CD piles or playlists this month. And, of course, we'll be talking about our March issue, On Sale Now. But before anything else, how about a spot of music to start the podcast? So that was Poulenc's Chanson Française, uh, performed by the BBC Singers, conducted by Sophie Genin. And that's a clip from our March cover CD, which comes free with your magazine. On to music news. It's been a busy month in the classical music world, and we've brought along just one news story each that's caught our eye. But you'll find plenty more in our March issue. First up, Jeremy, what news do you have to share with us today? Right, well, I suspect this may be the first of several Beethoven revelations or at least some sort of Beethoven-related news stories we get over the course of the year because, of course, this year is the 250th anniversary year of his birth in 1770. Right, well, kicking things off this year, um, we've got this this story that um, Beethoven might not have been quite as deaf as we like to imagine. 
Um, popular belief is that he started to go deaf um, in sort of end of the 18th century, and by about 1814, 1815, he was stone deaf. However, recent research has suggested that actually he might have still had a, some element of hearing right up as late as about 1824, which was the time of the premiere of his Ninth Symphony, um, and only about that's only three years before he actually died. So, um, and what has where this research has come from is actually from his conversation books. And now these are quite hard to explain what they are. But um, as Beethoven's hearing deteriorated, um, his friends and acquaintances would rather than trying to speak to him and him try and lip read, they would actually write things down in conversation books. Um, and it's what's slightly odd is that he rarely replied to them by writing replies. So we, they're very one-sided conversations, and we still have a lot of these conversation books. So you see what he was being asked, but we never hear his reply. Um, now and then he did actually write a reply, but very infrequently. Now, in the past, these um, conversation books have only been available in German, and clearly they haven't actually been studied that closely, otherwise we'd know about this evidence. But now um, uh, an academic from Kent State University in Ohio called Theodor Albrecht, who's a very notable Beethoven scholar, is translating all of them. And he says within them, there's little clues which suggest that Beethoven was hearing quite well into the 1820s, or not hearing quite well, but at least he had some element of hearing into the 1820s. Um, Interestingly, in one of the these conversation books, and this is actually a reply from Beethoven himself, so this is his own words, um, and this is in 1823, Beethoven apparently told another person who was also losing his hearing that baths and country air could improve many things. Just do not use mechanical devices too early. By abstaining from them, I have fairly preserved my left ear in this way, suggesting that as late as 1823, he still had something, in, you know, some sort of hearing in his left ear. And there's one or two other things here and there which suggest that um, as late as, I say, 1824, he could still hear a little bit. Previously, we mentioned in the magazine um, that in 1820, um, there was some sort of evidence that he was listening to his nephew Carl play the piano and commenting on it then, using an ear trumpet. So even even before now, that sort of previous thought of him being completely deaf by about 1816 seems unlikely. I thought this was totally fascinating for so many reasons. Mm. I mean, what you just said that actually these haven't been studied that closely before and you know, I, I kind of assumed that we sort of know everything there is to know about Beethoven's life and the documentation and that that's really been gone into so it's really fascinating now that new evidence is still coming out. I wonder if it's because they are these one-sided conversations and people kind of almost dismiss them because they weren't by Beethoven himself and they thought well they're not that interesting and there's I, there's 12 volumes of these these conversation books and I think a lot of the material in them is extremely trivial it seems like oh, what would you like me to get from the shops today or have you chased up that bill from your publisher or this that and the other really quite mundane stuff. So it's a lot of work. There's a lot of work in that I think to find these reward. tiny little clues but yeah. when they do throw up clues. I think they're actually probably quite fascinating. You're right though, because there has been so much, like how many books have been published about Beethoven and how much research has been done. It does seem mad that there's that massive catalogue of work that's never been looked into in that detail. And also when it relates to something as well that's so kind of tied up with our whole idea of Beethoven yeah. and his deafness. And I think when we did that feature a couple of years ago that you mentioned, Jeremy, um, that Robin Wallace wrote, which is sort of about new research around Beethoven's deafness. And actually, even then, um, he was sort of exploring how we kind of like, like, like this idea of struggle in Beethoven. We like this idea of, you know, that his music was maybe difficult because he was not hearing it out sort of out loud. He was hearing it inside his head. We you know there's so many kind of 
we impose so much of our narrative from that fact and actually we're probably wrong. <laughs> well, what makes it so interesting, of course, is because there is this very famous document written in 1802, October 1802, called the Heiligenstadt Testament, which um, he wrote to his brother at the time. He never sent it, so it was only discovered after his death, where he outlined the utter torment of knowing that he was going deaf. Um, so at that stage, he, we knew that he had quite a lot of hearing left, but he knew that he was going deaf. And then after that, the kind of the trail of just how deaf he was goes a little bit cold. It's all very anecdotal evidence. So we really are guessing, as you say. Mm. So things like this are actually quite quite interesting. You're, right, you're kind of building that portrait from the Heiligenstadt Testament to the Ninth Symphony premiere when there's that kind of infamous story of him conducting with without being able to hear. And you're right, the bit in between is kind of sort of a grey area so it's fascinating to hear a bit more about it. And you suspect an awful lot of it has been romanticised as yeah. well don't you? Like this <laughs> yeah. whole idea of this cut off from the outside world and you know this yeah. sort of... Yeah, mm-hmm. still producing works of genius. And, and it is more convenient for the story that he might be completely deaf by yeah. about 1814, 1815 yeah. whereas in fact possibly wasn't true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to round off Jeremy's story let's hear some of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony which he may have heard more of in performance than we had previously thought. <laughs> Vivace, which is the second movement from Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, performed by the Minnesota Orchestra, conducted by Osmo Venska, and that's on BIS Records. You can hear a lot of Beethoven this year on Radio 3, uh, as he is in Composer of the Week. Every other week is going to be dedicated to his life and music. And as you might have guessed, that's a handy segue into Freya's news story. Sublime segue. So, Radio 3. Yes, they have um, absolutely smashed it this year. The recent figures have just been released um, for the listening, the listener ratings. And they've kind of announced their highest rating since 2016. They've seen a 16% gr- increase from this time last year, which is the largest growth across any station in the BBC radio stations, which is, I mean, it's when you actually compare, Radio 1's dropped off quite a lot. Um, and the others have enjoyed like a little bit of growth, but actually Radio 3 has skyrocketed in comparison. Um, and classical music stations across the board have kind of seen these improved ratings. Scala, the new digital station that launched last year, and I think about March, had an 8% increase. Classic FM had 6%. And it's all kind of, they're showing a lot more significant growth than other talk-led radio stations, which is really interesting. And everyone's kind of made assumptions as to why that might be. Are we wanting to escape the news a bit more and listen to a bit more slow radio with birds chirping and discover classical music. So, yeah, it's an exciting time. I was, uh, yes, because my kind of Radio 3 listening, I have to say, is slightly dictated by by work hours. Mm. Um, I tend to be a sort of evening concert person. Mm. Um, um, and also, uh, if I'm working from home, I'll stick it on at home. So I like kind of like the morning morning programmes, etc. Do we know which particular programmes have, have I, boosted I think, the ratings? I or? think Breakfast's done well, hasn't it? Breakfast the, did really well. Yeah, and the, the, and weekend the weekend one. Breakfast one with Elizabeth Alka, I think, did particularly well. That kind of had massive figures. 
I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because we work for a BBC Music <laughs> magazine, but I think uh, the, the breakfast show, it's a really brilliant way to start your day and it's a really great selection of music they have there. And if you do, I made a decision not to start my day with the news and to start with, with music every day. And I feel so much happier for doing mm. it, I have to say. It was interesting. Recently in, um, in our immediate media big meeting uh, with our publishers, they talked about whether we should have the news screens um, showing up news stories as people come into work in the morning. And I hadn't actually really considered it in much depth. And I, too, have started listening to Radio 3 as opposed to Radio 4 in the morning and moving on to Radio 4 later in the day. And I agree. <laughs> it is just like a nicer way to sort of segue yourself into the day rather than being met with abrasive news. <laughs> I don't I don't want to do too much Radio 3 tub thumping here. However, I have to say one of the loveliest things in life is coming home from work and sticking on the Intune mixtape which is just half oh, yeah, an hour. I no really like that program. It's brilliant. Yeah. So I brought a new story about something completely different, which is that the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment has decided that for their next tour, which is to Poland and Hungary, they won't be travelling by plane, but that they're going to be taking the train instead. And that's part of a wider commitment to become carbon neutral. And the players have themselves voted to do this, even though it means that it's going to take them a lot longer, up to a day, I think, each way, rather than two and a half hours by plane. And also, it's not great for their budget. I think it costs quite a lot more. Um, But I did think that was an interesting bit of news. And I I think we're going to be seeing more and more of this from ensembles. I'm not convinced they're trying to compete or anything, but the Academy of Ancient Music, which is another period instrument ensemble, has also recently revealed that they are also aiming to become carbon neutral um, by their 50th birthday season, which is next year, I believe. Um, and they've, they've, they're actually based in Cambridge, the Academy of Ancient Music, and they're consulting with lots of local um, scientists because they have very good links with the university about how they might do it and what, what plans they can take. And I presume that transport will form part of their plans as well. I think it's great because it's it's finally orchestras and these bigger organisations are putting their money where their mouth is a little bit. And actually, music is such a global industry Um and the the amount of flights the conductors and the soloists must take year on year is astronomical. So it's great. It actually links in similarly to a story that we spoke about a while ago in the podcast about the Helsingborg Symphony Orchestra from Sweden, who actually banned conductors and soloists travelling by plane at all because they're very much on the sustainability drive. And actually it's good to finally see them all kind of joining forces and moving in the right direction. It's a great excuse for getting rid of a conductor, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you can't come. You're not willing. (laughs) (laughs) We want to go green. No conductor needed. Do without you. (laughs) When I visited the Gothenburg Opera House, they were in the throes of preparation for their Wagner ring cycle, which everything was going to be recycled, which meant everything with the sets and the costumes. um, And I mean, a lot of the stuff in there in the opera house is already, they're very into sustainability and trying to make everything as green as possible. But there was an example of where it's actually even affecting the aesthetic of the production, um, which I thought was very interesting too. Given that half these period instrument ensembles are kind of into replicating what it was like when the original music was written, surely they'd all want to turn up by kind of horse and cart <laughs> rather than train. <laughs> well, I think that would be the only authentic thing to do. Yeah, I think Rude so. It's a bit of a halfway house going by train, isn't it? They're still opting Cheating. out. Cheating. We should be candlelight. And... <laughs> it should be candlelight as well. Exactly. <laughs> Right, well, that brings us to the end of the news section, so we'll go on to this month's magazine. magazine. 
Well, before we actually get into talking about the magazine, just a quick plug for a few other ways you can engage with BBC Music magazine. Don't forget our website at classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Plus, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And if you fancy subscribing to our print edition, we have a special discount for our wonderful podcast listeners. All of you can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25.15p. You can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash music podcast. Jeremy, can you tell us about the March issue cover? Right. I'm going to ask you a little question. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> three famous opera singers. If you ask the general public to name three famous opera singers from all time, which three would you think they'd say? Pavarotti, Callas, yeah. and Caruso. Yeah. I think so Agreed. as well. I think those are the three. They're, they're strange. Although kind of people are aware of the likes of kind of Brinter, Fell, um, Placido, Domingo, etc. I think widespread there are those just three names who are sort of household names. However, loads of people know the name Caruso. They go, ah, oh, yes, Enrico Caruso. But how many people actually know that much about him? I'll be honest, I didn't actually know a huge amount about him until I read this month's cover feature. <laughs> yes, Nicely the, done. <laughs> on the front cover of the March issue, we have got um, Enrico Caruso looking absolutely magnificent in a... His, I love this cover. His, <laughs> his big tash and his, his outfit. Flamboyant hat. Very flamboyant outfit. Um and we've done it. We've, we've taken a fairly simple approach that we've looked at um, with the headline on the magazine just simply says the great Caruso. And what we have done is looked at his life and asked, why was he great? What did he do? Which kind of made him stand out. He came from fairly kind of humble stock, but went on to become the great um, sort of the great recording figure of his age. He, he recorded very prolifically. Um, he went from um, Naples opera houses to report right across the world and really made a lot of kind of roles his own, particularly um, Puccini and the sort of early, late 19th century, early 20th Italian repertoire was really his thing. Um, and it's just a look at his story and how he, he actually had a comparatively short life. Mm. Um, but in our piece, George Hall looks at what he had just what he achieved in that short life and how he kind of set the standard for future opera singers to come. Mm. And he was so kind of tied up as well, wasn't he, with the advent of recording, yes. which also makes him such an interest, maybe as part of the success as well in his reputation. And there's that wonderful anecdote about um, when he's recording these 10 songs and what, what the agent, what fee would he accept? And uh, <laughs> he said he wanted £100, which is about £8,000 in today's money. And the agent wanted approval, <laughs> got the reply, fee exorbitant, forbid you to record. <laughs> and they went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> and it was a bestseller. <laughs> Do you know something? It always helps to be in the right place at the right time in history. Because just as Caruso was there at the kind of the dawn of the recording age, so his was the voice that everyone heard and wanted to hear, kind of fast forward many decades and you get to the advent of the CD, which is what partly launched the huge success of the three tenors. And mm. um, so it kind of repeats itself. When there's a new format, there's a whole new market waiting to be to be captured. And he had yeah. such... His global reach was kind of greater than probably anyone since really in the kind of scope that he had and I actually, I actually came across him in more detail through another podcast called the Switched On Pop podcast which is about pop music and they kind of did like a little look back at, as to how classical and pop had kind of crossed over in history and um, and they were kind of singing his praises and looking at the I mean the massive appeal he had 
kind of across record like no one buys records now like they did then mm. and he was just in every home and he was kind of the popularity of One Direction combined with it reminds me <laughs> Brent Turville. Um, Alexandra Wilson wrote that piece for us about um, opera stars in their heyday and they were the big celebrities mm. before, you know, the big Hollywood film era. Yeah. So that was that kind of period where they were just the huge names in the same way that film film stars perhaps are yeah, that's true. for us today. And he kind of falls right into that. I mean, to be fair, and it wasn't just his sort of persona, he, his voice, when you actually do take the mm. chance to listen to it, he had this wonderful agility, sort of... Yeah. I don't know how better to describe it, but it's kind of, it's this beautiful sound and it always sounds effortless. Yeah. Never, even the kind of most testing repertoire, he never really sounds as though he's pained at all, that he's actually so, so easy. Yeah, just that like, real direct connection with the audience in a way, just exactly. like speaking to you. And there's something quite interesting when you listen to his recordings out. I know um, a couple of years ago they put his voice with like a modern orchestra in a modern recording context and it didn't have quite the same effect because it was, obviously he's got such an incredible voice that cuts over the top, but actually there's something really magical about, you can hear like the dawn of the recording era and the kind of early wax cylinder mm. technology being used. Mm. Pretty great combination. Well, it's like those recordings of Menuhin when he was very young, mm. recording um, violin concertos, particularly the Mendelssohn violin concerto. Mm. It's got a real atmosphere of it, partly mm. because of the recording at mm. the time. I don't know. Or Arthur Schnabel with his Beethoven. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. I know some people. Yeah. <laughs> some people don't because of that, but yeah. <laughs> great. Okay. Well, should we move on now um, to our composer of the month? So that was the Vivo from Basavich's String Quartet Number no. 3. Uh, that was played by the Lutislavsky Quartet, and it's a, a Naxos recording. So as you may have guessed, our composer of the month is Grazina Basavich, who is one of Poland's most brilliant composers. And we've got a lovely feature by John Allison, who's painted a really great portrait of her. She lived from 1909 to 1969. And, well, Lutislavsky described her as a natural-born true musician, combining, like the great masters of the Baroque, the talent of a creator and a performer into one harmonious whole. And she was, indeed, a violinist and a pianist, as well as a composer. Um, and... Uh, string instruments are very sort of prominent in her music and she wrote these wonderful uh, string quartets, seven of them, as well as I think it was 11 concertos, many of which are for, for the violin. And she's a really wonderful composer and even though she's probably never really been out of, completely out of the spotlights in, in her life, I think she's now really sort of taking her place on the international stage and in, especially in recordings. There have been some really great ones on Shandos and Naxos recently. And I think if you like, you know, um, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, Martinu, Janacek, um, maybe, um, yeah, well, those sort of neoclassical um, era, you'd definitely be interested in her music. So it goes through all these different phases as well. Is the neoclassical, uh, later she went into kind of serial music, um, this is sort of the Soviet kind of feel to it. It's a kind of great variety. Um, yeah, and it's a really lovely piece about her. What is quite interesting, I found, because um, when with these Composer of the Month pieces, which we put in the magazine, um, inevitably it takes a little bit of research on our part um, to do the kind of accompanying material, such as mm. the Life and Times box and various other box outs. Um, normally with 20th century composers, it's very easy 
to find things to write about them. Um, with her, it was surprisingly difficult. There's very little information yeah, about her um, to be found, um, either about um, her life and her times, or actually about her music in general. You were told about her competition wins. She was a serial competition winner. Yeah. Um, but that's actually fairly dull to read about yeah. that she won this competition. <laughs> but actually about, um, we know that she had a, a serious car crash. Yeah. Which, um, which basically meant she gave up her, her piano and her violin career and concentrated on composing. But beyond that, it's very hard to find actually that much about her. So mm. she obviously had quite a sort of, I don't know, secretive life, I wouldn't say necessarily, mm. but because of where she was at the time, mm. there's not an awful lot of information kicking around about her now. But there were other things as well that, you know, they're just... She's very prolific and she obviously had this huge energy because she wrote novels as well and that were actually published in plays. Mm. You know, that's just as an aside to her, you know properly professional career as a prize-winning pianist, violinist. An overachiever. Definitely overachiever. But it's quite hard to gauge what she was like from the information, what she was like as a person, isn't it? It's, yes, I'd agree. Because normally yeah. kind of with the likes of Prokofiev and Shostakovich, contemporaries such as that, you really know what they were like as people because they were so well documented. Whereas here you really are kind of clutching at straws trying yeah. to find things. I think there were lots of sort of interesting elements that I was kind of tantalised by in a way. Um, even her name, Gradina, was an invention of Adam Mickiewicz, who was sort of Poland's sort of national writer in a way. And it's about a mythical Lithuanian female warrior. And that was interesting because Lithuania and Poland, her family ended up being split between them in this kind of shared heritage. So and there were lots of kind of interesting moments that I'd even like to know even more about, actually. Yeah, you're right. In the last couple of years, potentially, there's been quite a lot more recording done of her work, quite significant, like noticeably, actually, because there was a bit of an absence before that. So you wonder if more about her will come out in the next... <laughs> we're still finding out about Beethoven. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe about... it's in Polish. Maybe there's stuff that hasn't been translated into English. Yeah. Exactly. talking about yeah, translation, yeah. how important that is. For... Just hasn't travelled the information yet. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. Freya, yes. which article have you brought to talk about? So this month we spoke to Sofia Gabaydalina, the uh, composer, um, in conjunction with the fact that she's just won uh, the very prestigious Royal Philharmonic Society's gold medal and she's the first female composer to do so. Um, so we sent Daniel Jaffe to meet Sofia um, to kind of talk about her growing up in the USSR and how she kind of pushed against the regime. It was absolutely fascinating. It was quite a historical look back at the kind of the political time that she grew up in, because it's such an interesting time, that. And um, looking at how she kind of experimented with sound as a child and how it kind of continued on into her very avant-garde um, compositional style. Um, there's so much to explore with her as a composer. I think I'm, I'm only really scratching the surface recently, but I actually came across... Um, her work for accordion yesterday in one of my brief notes discs called De Profundus, which it absolutely blew me away. It was kind of it's dark and eerie and really abrasive, but very virtuosic and actually really beautiful. And her her compositions are just incredible. And I think there's so much to discover with her and looking back on her fascinating upbringing and kind of working within the USSR and how she kind of smuggled her violin concerto out of the USSR to get premiered by Gidon Kramer. There's just like brilliant little anecdotes peppered throughout. And I love the little connection to Beethoven. She talks about um, when she was awarded the RPS gold medal, it was especially important to her because it's from the Royal Philharmonic Society, which was so bound up with commissioning um, Beethoven Symphony uh, Number no. 9. And... Um, she says, you know, she thinks for the sake of the serious development of humanity, 
uh, the pursuit of composing profound classical music is most important, more important than poetry, literature, or any occupation in the sphere of technology and science. So she's got this incredible belief in the power of music. And she kind of relates that to Beethoven. And I found that very inspiring, actually, mm. as well. She's very philosophical, the, the quotes mm. that have, are kind of throughout the piece. I had to kind of reread some of them again and again because there was so much to kind of unwrap with the. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's such a brilliant brain. So, yes. So now let's listen to a little bit of Gabardelina's work. This is the Chacon, uh, played by pianist Anna Vinitskaya on the Ambrosia label. in the March issue, we have an interview with the pianist Noriko Ogawa. Uh, Richard Bratbury takes us behind the scenes of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra in its centenary year. Uh, Jessica Dushan interviews John Wilson, the conductor who uh, has newly reformed the Symphonia of London. In our Building a Library, uh, we're looking at Debussy's Prelude for Piano. And there are also all of our regular features, including the Music That Changed Me interview, uh, Richard Morrison's Column, and all of the regular features. Now let's move on to first listen. First listen. Before we kick off with sharing our favourite new recordings, we'd like to tell you about how you can get involved in sharing your musical discoveries with us and fellow readers. You can send us what you've been listening to at music at classical-music.com and you could be in with a chance of being published on our Music to My Ears page in the magazine. And you can also head to our listening room on Facebook where you can chat about all your musical discoveries there with fellow readers. So for my first listen, I have actually been enjoying two discs that showcase the Boulanger sisters, Lily and Nadia. Uh, one is with the tenor Cyril Dubois, and that's actually literally just arrived on my desk this morning, so I've just started to dip into listening to that. Um, the second is from tenor Nicholas Fan, and he has built a programme around Lily Boulanger's song cycle, um, Clairière dans le ciel, which is, was written in 1913. Uh, brace yourself for some cheery stuff here. Uh, it's all about love and, well, loss of love. It's a man sort of re reminiscing on this relationship with a woman and it all goes a bit sour. And we're going to hear a clip from the devastating final song, which is called Demain fera un an an, which is tomorrow it will be a year. And it ends with the words, nothing left. I have nothing left, nothing left to hold me up. <laughs> disc is on the Avi label. Jeremy, what have you brought along? Well, thanks for that very cheery start there. <laughs> you're Rebecca. welcome, you're welcome. <laughs> Plunge us into despair. Thankfully, I've got something a little bit chirpier. Um, what I've, I've been listening to recently is um, 33 Miniatures for Piano, 
by Gia Cancelli. We've had a bit of a 20th century Eastern Bloc theme to <laughs> our podcast this month, um, and I'm going to continue this here. Um, for those who don't know Cancelli, he was Georgian. He died fairly recently, actually, only last year. Um, very kind of influential composer in Georgia and beyond. Um, now then, his 33 miniatures here, which are performed by George Fachnadze on the piano, and it's this is on the Piano Classics label. Um, they are all between about one minute and three minutes long, these pieces, and actually all based on music which um, Cancelli wrote for either plays or um, film. He was actually a very prolific film composer. Um, there, it's, a, it's a quirky listen, um, and the character of the music, because as you'd expect for film music, because he kind of adapted his style to fit, it moves from sort of there's a couple which have a real satty like stillness. There's a couple of very jazzy sort of Gershwin-y type ones. There's some very lyrical stuff, uh, which reminded me almost like sort of kind of Chopin or something like that. It's a, it's a real mix of styles. Um, the one I'm going to choose you tell me what you think it sounds like. It's quite funny. It almost sounds like a kind of a children's piece. Um, and it's called um, Extraordinary Exhibition, which was actually a film by Eldar Shen Shengalaya um, in 1969. So it's music from that, or it's derived from music, which he wrote from that. just have to kind of say that trying to pick one track from this album is very difficult because the whole charm of the album lies in the fact that it changes mood so much and you kind of plunge from one area to the other so that that's just one little bit of it but it's not all like very that. It was a jaunty. nice pick me up yeah, wasn't it exactly. after yours yeah very jaunty just really needed a little moment in your day where <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh freya what have you brought for us to listen to so I am continuing the theme of the kind of Eastern Europe um, spirit, this podcast. So I'm bringing a collection of works by the Lithuanian composer, whose name is very difficult to pronounce, and I've done a lot of research, and I'm unsure I'm going to get it right. Raminta Shirkshnita. Everyone can judge me accordingly for that. Um, and she's a kind of rising star Lithuanian composer and her works here are performed by the Lithuanian National Symphony Orchestra under Mirga Grzynska Tila. Um, and it's just another instance of uh, Mirga kind of championing a lesser-known composer from this fascinating musical country, really. There's so much being produced over there that's actually... It's great that it's been given a platform over here now. Um, and it's kind of, the whole disc is quite spacious and mythical with a whole mix of influences. It kind of explores Indian Braga-type improvisations um, with these Baltic sound worlds. And it's quite cinematic. You can imagine it sort of working quite well in a score and it kind of takes you through um, the day as well. It explores a lot to do with nature. So there's the final kind of piece on the the disc is called Songs of Sunset and Dawn, which is, I think is particularly magical and it kind of follows the process of the natural world waking up and kind of travelling throughout the day. Um, and the natural world is kind of at the centre of quite a few of the pieces on this disc um, and it utilises all the forces of the orchestra. So we're actually, it's quite difficult to find a clip of a good length um, from this disc because it's, it's so, such a spacious disc that it kind of gradually unfurls over quite a long time frame. Um, but we're going to listen to 
um, an extract from the third movement of Songs of Sunset and Dawn, which is called Morning, Eternal Morning. taken from the recent DG disc uh, of works by Raminta Schirkschnitter. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. Our jingles, each one inspired by a different English choral composer, were written by Christopher Maxim. And our podcast is produced here in Bristol by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. So it's goodbye from me, Freya and Jeremy, and there'll be another group of the BBC Music Magazine team to chat next month about our April issue. See you then. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. La BBC Music